I'll give you a hundred dollars if you say something nice about me. You are pleasant to chat with. No, Kevin. Corruption. No, if I'm bad, I'm bad. I've bribed ah! you. I've bribed you and it's bad. See, that is exactly the kind of behavior we want to be working against. You're welcome. Wow. <laughs> See, that's just how easy it is. This is why bribery and money I am, make their way into sport. I am the FIA. You are the FIA? One of us is the uh, FIA. I think you are the FIA and I am... Oh yeah, like, you're big oil. I'm like Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Or a big oil company. Uh, you're listening to All on the Field and today we are talking about uh, corruption and money and uh, some of the difficulties that those influences have uh, on the ability of people with consciences consciences with a conscience to enjoy certain sporting events um the news of the week of the day of you know the past few days is that um f1 is racing in saudi arabia this year for the first time there's a new track being built it's the Jeddah street circuit and some photos i guess came out isn't the right term because it's not like this is hidden it's a racetrack some photos were published the other week a some week photos ago were published a week and or became so well noticed that showed that this race happens in just under a month happens december 5th i believe and the track is like not even close to finished it looks like a bunch of gravel it looks like they just started bit. yeah it looks like stage one of like when some contractor decides they're going to put in a housing development and they've like cleared the trees off the land and built some road and that's it. Uh, and this race that's supposed to happen in a month, um, happening in Saudi Arabia, which is a place that has questionable ethical policies and procedures. Yeah. To, to put it right, uh, to put it lightly, we would say that th that country and the powers that have money there are well acquainted with a little human rights violation or two. Just a few. And that the expectation given other um, sporting venues that have been completed in the Middle East, for example, like for a World Cup or whatever, are that the only way this is getting done is going to be with labor that absolutely cannot be acquired ethically. There's, they're not going to be enough at-will workers showing up to get this thing built in the next three weeks. But people will do the work, and it will be built. Yeah, it's going to happen. And this is very on-brand for F1. Um, so Kevin and I were talking about this a little while ago and talking about how it's... It's rights of, out, and away we go. Yeah, it's rights out, and away we go. It's difficult to grapple with the fact that um a sporting event that we both really really love both as like you know the athletic demonstration between different drivers showing off their skills and the engineering feat that these teams put together when they put an f1 car out there and the simple visual spectacle of cars going extremely fast yeah and it looks cool but that it's difficult to balance that with the fact that the sport has just an atrocious record with um, corruption and ignoring, you know, political issues of the time and 
you know like for real in the same season as they started kind of doing the we race as one thing they're like hey we're also going to go race in saudi arabia now what exactly it's like you know a, a few drivers get on the same page regarding um the demonstration protest whatever that they can do before races um it's very similar to what you know nfl players were doing taking a knee before games during the national anthem um most of the f1 drivers there are a couple that are abstaining but most of the f1 drivers have been doing the same uh, it's an activity led by Lewis Hamilton, who's black, and he's the only black F1 driver right now. Um, and, you know, at the same time, when F1 decides that it's profitable enough to support that activity, uh, in the same season, they decide that we're going to have a race in Saudi Arabia, which just has an atrocious human rights record. They assassinate journalists. They like it's terrible and potentially um, we're looking at, you know, what might equate to effectively a slave labor situation to get a racetrack done for this um, for this event, which is not great. It makes it more difficult for me to enjoy the sport, certainly, because I don't think that there's any of the teams that I can completely innocently root for. I don't know if there's any of the drivers that... I can do the same for another drivers who I think are good guys and are just part of the thing. But the drivers that I feel that way about, which would be like whatever Vettel and Ricardo have been in the sport long enough that they've kind of just been watching this shit happen forever. And so they're a little bit complicit in it happening. Um, it makes it tough to enjoy it. Like there had, there's a cynical aspect every time something that I really like happens on track the thought that immediately follows that is something cynical about, you know, the morality of the entire production. Yeah. It's certainly disheartening. You know, F1 has a history of this kind of weird money being in the sport, right? Like there's always the rumor mill and maybe we'll cover some of these stories specifically in like a, a later episode where we can talk about weird racing history. Um, but there have been a number of investments in like high dollar racing and F1 where it is pretty apparent that the way a team was funded was as a money laundering activity for somebody, you know, some very rich person or some very well-connected person effectively uses, you know, drug money or blood money to fund a team. This happened in, you know, the seventies and eighties and nineties. And, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s, Big Tobacco was sponsoring F1 teams and throwing just huge, huge sums of money to have the Camel car and the Marlboro car. And you know, that's how whatever Ferrari racing became a big thing. Um, more recently, a lot of those companies have gotten back into F1, despite the fact that there is technically a ban on alcohol and tobacco advertising on F1 cars. Um, but these tobacco companies have strange spinoffs that question arguably do nothing like questionable weird shell companies that are sponsoring f1 teams um and now we have is it four races we now have in the middle east in countries with questionable ethics there's two in bahrain there's abu dhabi isn't there also is qatar yeah there's qatar there's the two in bahrain, abu dhabi abu dhabi and saudi arabia dubai so and five saudi races arabia four locations yeah so that's kind of that's tough that's what you know 
next season's going to be a 23 race season. This year's 22. Yeah, I think it's going to be long, So that's effectively a quarter of the season happens in these places that have just awful ethics, but they're able to buy their way um, into, into F1. I was doing some research on um, where F1 finances actually, you know, come from technically and they are as hidden as they can possibly be. But basically sense. the biggest, the way that the teams in F1 make money is from sponsorship, advertising on their cars and from prize money. They win from formula one based on finishing position. F1 as an institution makes money mostly like greater than 50% from broadcasting and TV rights, which is a normal ethical, fine way to do it. But the second biggest source of revenue is, um, I think they're called race sanctioning fees. And that's the money that like Saudi Arabia pays to F1 to host a race. And they don't disclose that value specifically, but somebody pulled up some old filings from the SEC that showed that F1 made $654 million in sanctioning fees for the 2016 season. Uh, meaning that the average F1... more now? Huh? Want to bet it's more now? Definitely more now. Especially this year, next year? It's the average F1 race in 2016 cost a city, a country, whatever, $31 million. Um, so it's pretty apparent that, you know, the way that a Saudi Arabia gets an F1 race is they just pay a high enough bill and F1 as an institution looks the other way and Saudi Arabia gets a race. Drivers can't do anything. Fans can't do anything. Drivers could not race. They could choose to not race. They cannot race. They can wear t-shirts or yeah. It does things, make you wonder but, where uh, the line is, right? For driver activism, like what would be effective at this? I think the only thing racing. that would be effective is fully abstaining. Yeah. I mean, what was effective in uh, the NBA bubble? Um, yeah, people just as didn't a play. Form of protest. People just didn't play. Like there was, I think, a two-day window. Yep. Where the players just said, "Yeah, we're we're not playing." A bunch yep. of games got rescheduled. And yeah, I'd be on board with it. I know we've seen, uh, especially with Vettel, you've seen some of the things in the news throughout the year of him being willing to do sort of minor jabs at, I think in Hungary was a big one. He, uh, Hungary, I guess has some homophobic, transphobic policies and strong things in place like that. And Vettel wore a shirt openly supporting those things. I don't remember what the shirt said, but it was a jolly good sentiment and people appreciated that. And I guess I appreciated that. And hopefully everybody should appreciate that, that he was willing to sort of do that sort of the bare minimum, arguably. Right. Um, and interestingly, people sort of made comments of wondering and suggesting what what Vettel should do in Saudi Arabia when they go there and things like that. And it's like some of these countries, like it actually maybe is enough of an iffy area to where it's like, if he does some of these things, like would they just arrest him? Would he leave the country? Like, yeah, and I don't think that one driver could be a sufficient enough impact. Like, I think that you would need to have all 20 drivers or a critical mass of the top team drivers, you know, if the top yeah. eight drivers or whatever, it's abstained from the race or like made a very public unified statement that could have an impact. Um, yeah, but one or two guys showing up wearing shirts is better than nothing, but certainly I think not more productive useless. than... Yeah. Saying, no, we're not going to go race at this yep. event. 
I mean, does it impact your ability to enjoy these? I mean, I think about a lot of the teams individually. Um, like I can't love any of these F1 teams because of shady money sources, sponsorship from like big oil companies that have There's... reprehensible environmental practices. Um, you know, it's just sort of money definitely talks. And there's some really shady, sketchy, you know, politically troublesome sponsorship that happens on these teams. I don't know what the wording is to attach to it. Underdog isn't the right one, but maybe that's the one I'll use anyway. Like there's there's just not really any of that in the sport. Like you can, they can sort of have a narrative going like, oh, this is the underdog driver, the redemption, whatever, whatever. And it's like this person or this team is still like a ludicrous collection of blood money. Like that's just like on many levels funneled enough money in to make the thing happen anyway. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, I like the Pierre Gasly redemption arc and think he's a likable dude. But at the same time, it's kind of like, how much like should and can you root for like right. anybody involved in it? Because you know that they're sort of complicit on many levels. And for for context, for Pierre Gasly, he was a driver who went up to Red Bull, which is one of the top two or three teams over the past decade in F one. Um, he was racing alongside another driver who is like the golden child at Red Bull, and he definitely had a tough time with that seat. He wasn't handling the car well. He wasn't performing well. He was definitely um, under driving relative to the potential of the vehicle. He got demoted out of the seat. And then simultaneous with when that happened, um, there was a fatality at a racetrack in F2. And the driver who died was one of Pierre Gasly's best friends. And since that happened, and he's talked about this in interviews and it's worth a read, um, he's been on a tear and doing really, really well, overperforming the expectations of the car in the team that's like the... Effectively the junior team and the feeder team for Red Bull. Right. Like they, 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 they're they called a sister team and there are regulations regarding what the reciprocal relationship between the teams can be is. But effectively, the if a driver performs really, really well at this other team, they might be in line to get a Red Bull seat. Which is how he got there in the first place. He yes. went through their little feeder program and excelled at Toro Rosso, which mm -hmm. is, I believe, translated to literally Red Bull, now yes. renamed to Alpha Tauri. Which is a clothing he, brand line. Yes. Not the same as Red Bull. Um, anyway, yeah, he worked his way up through that system and then underperformed and then got sort of kicked back. And many people, mm -hmm. including me, think that it was maybe too fast and too harsh of a learning curve expected. Um, and now he's been on a tear and they sort of have just been like, well, we're not going to promote him again because he wasted his chance. It's kind of like, where does yeah. he go now? And it's kind of like, <laughs> we we can root for this guy because in that case, the, the story is interesting and he seems to be a, a good guy by all accounts, but it's still like kind of tough to actually like. How much of an underdog can you be if you're participating in a sport that's for for the ultra ultra wealthy and if you're making in. you know who knows what his salary was four five ten million dollars a year you're getting to do this ridiculously silly fun thing for a living it's, like the adversity that a lot of these drivers feel like they face is probably pretty manufactured and, and just relative to actual like actual life life challenging adversities is very different i mean even like there's just i don't know like there's no driver who i think like oh like such a, like who is an inspiring story in F1 like they all came up extremely for like they can be great people they can be great people yeah. they can spread good messages be wonderful humans and like I will embrace and be happy for that but none of them like they're all extremely extremely fortunate in all of it and I mean that's great yeah I mean good I think for them I think Lewis Hamilton <laughs> as far as I'm aware has the closest like most of the drivers are the sons of 
former world champions. Yeah, right. Max Verstappen, his father, Joss Verstappen. I don't think he ever won a championship or anything, but he was a good driver back in the day. Yep. Uh, Carlos Sainz, his father is Carlos Sainz Sr., who's a rally racing legend. And still does it. Yep, still does it. <laughs> Antonio Giovinazzi, his father, I don't know what level he raced at, but his dad's a... I don't know. Mick Schumacher. racer, Mick Schumacher. is Michael Schumacher's kid. Like, there are examples, but for the most part, it's like big money or like some connections that get you into the sport. I think that the closest thing that I'm aware of is Lewis Hamilton. And his situation is when he was a kid, his dad worked double jobs for a while to get him into karting because karting is an expensive hobby and you have to get your kid into it young. But very early in his karting career, it was clear that he was really, really good. And some wealthy benefactor picked up the bill. So like there is a moment of like that story. And I was like, whatever, I'm not here to like fetishize a adversity story. <laughs> but what we're saying is that these drivers are not relatable by and large. You know, yeah, if I had shown incredible talent at podcasting at the age of 12 and some, <laughs> you know, big, big money, big media had thrown, you know, a hundred million dollars my family's way so I could build my podcasting empire from the age of 12. Uh, I wouldn't be a very relatable person to say the least. You know, it's like we're a child actor thing. Like, you know, it's not a, it's not a normal, normal upbringing. So I guess something that I was sort of pondering was basically we were asserting that maybe what I think I would actually like to see as much as it would be not saying the thing. I would like it if the drivers were all just like, nah, what if we just don't go to Saudi Arabia and race? Like, what yeah. if they did something like that? And it's like, but on some level for somebody on one of the teams, it would be sort of an opportunity for them to maybe win a weird one-off race where their teams don't show up. And it's like, they like, should they have to give up their, like, yeah. Part of me is like, it would be like their dream, their childhood dream coming true, which is worth so much. But also I'm like your dream relative to like everybody, like, does it matter that much? No. Like that's the the weird area. Like they I mean, should is, be allowed to pursue it. This like, is the tough thing about sports, right? It's <laughs> like you're watching grown men fulfill dreams that most people have to give up in their late teens. That most people have to spend money to play lesser versions of. Right. <laughs> and you're watching grown adults chase these dreams while getting compensated very, very handsomely for it. And you're supposed to feel bad when things don't go their way. Yep. Very strange. Yep. Um on the topic of race driver redemption stories, uh, let's talk about Kyle Larson. Oh, Kyle Larson. Redemption. He redeemed himself from... God. This is what the, a crock of shit. The very strange narrative that is basically happening. Well, I guess if you're not a yeah, we should fan we definitely need some NASCAR background fan. here for what precipitated this uh, this whole scenario. Yes. So I guess maybe foolish background. Kyle Larson, extremely talented stock car driver, very very promising young dude in NASCAR. Did lots of winning. Was notably just extremely fast in outperforming his technology. Uh, Racing for a good team, but not yes, not the a best. top team. Not a top team, but a good team. Yes, a good team, but was racing among the very best at the time. Anyway, showing very, very strong promise and regarded as one of the most talented drivers out there and was 28, 28. Uh, now I think he's race car driver. Stock 30. car drivers are like baseball players. They hit their prime <laughs> in a really weird way and suddenly ascend. Like you have a 30 year old MLB rookie. Yes. But early in COVID when NASCAR tried to do the, uh, well, I guess succeeded. They did the nifty thing where they substituted their inability to do actual races by doing virtual races. This actually wasn't even one of those directly, but it sort of opened the door to the whole like drivers streaming and some level of broadcast yeah, they were events doing and there's much more notoriety and attention was brought to it. 
and uh, Kyle Larson slipped in a racial slur beginning with the letter N very casually and very comfortably while streaming one of these and was delivered in a obviously negative manner towards somebody else and just under no circumstances okay to say and think about like the worst case hot mic situation that a person can catch themselves in he's sitting in his living room or office ostensibly where his race simulator is set up He's been part of this event where he's communicating with somebody else. I don't know if it was a team representative. I'm trying to recall who was on the other end. But he was talking to somebody through his, you know, gaming headset, whatever, talking to somebody who's helping him with the race. And this is being live streamed to... However many people. Yeah. thousands. At least hundreds, at least thousands. A large enough audience of people because people were really starved for entertainment at the beginning of COVID. I mean, God, that Michael Jordan documentary came out and people thought that was good. Uh, so people were <laughs> watching this story. kind of stuff. Um, and he, Larson thought that either his internet connection had dropped out or the voice call, the audio call he was on had dropped out or he thought in air quotes. Who knows? Yeah. Well, right. He claims who can judge the truth of this, but um, that he was disconnected and what he said was to the other person, like, can you hear me N-word? And N-word directed at that person. And then in the live broadcast, and you can find this on YouTube the moment, I think there's a pause of a few seconds. And then a bunch of other race car, a bunch of the other drivers who are in the same chat lobby are like, uh, dude, your mic is hot. Like, we can all hear that. Uh, at which point he certainly realized what he had just happened. Oopsie. Yep. But uh, I guess... Anyway, in retaliation Regardless of the for this, microphone circumstance, yeah, not okay. You, you don't say that, and, and that's not an excuse for saying that. And he said it in a way that was like so casual. Suggested it was it's his vocabulary. Obviously, a word he uses frequently. Um, so the the Kyle Larson is of, I believe, Japanese American descent. That is correct. For, I guess racial context and because that matters a little he bit. He entered NASCAR through one of their like driver diversity programs. Yep. So he had some opportunities that were afforded to him because of his background being a minority driver, which is uncommon in NASCAR. Mm -hmm. So as punishment for this, he got suspended for the remainder of that season. All of his sponsorships left him. He was fired from his race team and And all reasonable outcomes. And then he immediately signed with... Hendrick Motorsports, the juggernaut of NASCAR. That's won some ludicrous percentage of the last 30 years of championships. yeah, and has now, I guess, as of three days ago, won the championship and had one of the most successful seasons of right. all time in the sport. So he comes back so after this event, signs with the top team, absolutely smokes everybody. and 10 wins in a 36 race season. And Outrageous. Every media outlet, not every. Too many. A lot of media <laughs> outlets and the general consensus like weirdly this has become the story is that Kyle Larson winning the title this year is redemption for what he did. Usually redemption suggests that you've been uh, a victim of circumstance or misfortune or wrongdoing, but I don't think those are supposed to include your own wrongdoing. Like here's (laughs) here's some examples of redemption stories. Okay. Uh, Derek Rose. Derek Rose, uh, Alex Smith, 
snapping his leg in half, having surgeries where a flesh-eating bacteria got into his leg, losing all the muscle in one of his legs, having it reconstructed, not being able to play for like a year and a half, and then being able to come back and like play an NFL game. That's a redemption story. Yeah. That's a story I can be like, that is awesome. That's super cool. Uh, you know, redemption stories generally are like player gets or athlete gets unjustly injured. Somebody attacks him. Uh, Geno Smith getting punched in the jaw, his jaw broken and then being a backup forever. And then recently coming in for some games for the Seahawks because Russell Wilson was hurt. Like that's something of a redemption story. That's cool. Carmelo Anthony being sort of not finding a home in the NBA for a while because of whatever reasons of how he was playing and then out of the league. And now he's having one of the best seasons of his career. Like that's its own kind of redemption. Like, yep. He redeemed himself. He was not like, I guess maybe that's a unique case. He was not necessarily wronged. He was not performing in a way that was suitable for the expectations. And then he redeemed himself by working hard and proving it. And now he is right, like, living his a, redemption. A redemption story has to have the component of, um, you're on a trajectory that's positive. Something outside your power or like something interjects, knocks you down a rung, and like the public perception of what you're capable of like falls. People say, oh, you're on this great trajectory where you could have been the best of all time, but X, Y, and Z happened and now you're just some scrub. And then you come back and prove that, oh, never mind, I am incredible, yada, yada. I've overcome these awful circumstances. I've overcome all this stuff, right? Like I've fought through the adversity and here we are. But it's also, it's a metric of sort of undoing what was done and proving that the damage right. that was done was, I guess, not permanent, which so you get injured. What do you do? You rehab for a long time, work very hard to rebuild your form, your game and your athleticism and you come back. Yep. If you're Carmelo Anthony, you are not playing well enough. So you work hard and you get back to right. where you, you were. Like and you prove get that you're a good teammate yes. and you get the redemption of that. Yes. And the setback was corrected. You are no longer injured and you've proven that you can now compete. If you're Kyle Larson, the setback was that you're a racist, lousy human using words you shouldn't uh, that are extremely negative to other people and exclusive and not okay to use and your correction to being racist on some level is you drove cars fast after somebody paid you a lot of money to do it again right like, there's there's a very big disconnect between those two things and that's you can't be redeemed without doing anything related to the initial action like the difficulty here is that obviously we don't have all the insight into the things that kyle larson may have been doing to try to make up for what he's done because i you know in talking about this off mic we both said that you know what you have to what a public figure has to do after that occurs is they have to do enough positive work and put enough positive messaging and do good things in the world to you know make up for what they've done by saying the n-word on a hot mic you have enabled a bunch of people who are closed-minded racists empowered them to use that word more liberally um, so you have to do enough work in the world to reduce the fact that you've just unleashed a little tidal wave of racism in the world now, there are reports that he has done some things. He's been volunteering with some charities. Um, he's been working with the NASCAR driver diversity program. 
to, all very good things and correct things that he should be doing. It's impossible for us to assess the degree to which that is genuine. And it strikes me as ingenuine because the only news mentions of it happening are in this very narrow window of time. Um, after the initial anger had died down, but before he signed the contract with Hendrick Motorsport. Yeah, I guess what I would like to see, and I think you also would like to see, and what most people should like to see, like he should be pretty... I mean, he is... He now has the platform in NASCAR. He has... It's not even really related, but it's correct thing to do still that he has been very endlessly grateful towards his team for willing to pick him up, which they should, and the fans giving a second chance, which... I think they should be willing to give him a second chance. What he has not done is the third thing, which is probably the most important one, which is like take advantage to say like, hey, like we like I'm happy to have this opportunity to be able to sort of, I guess, speak positive act like like right. he should be speaking against the racism that he conveyed right. and making some acknowledgement of I made a huge mistake. I'm very lucky to have been given this opportunity. And like, there's no room for what I said and what I did. And the fact that I'm here right now is like just extremely, I don't know, some acknowledgement of being extremely lucky to be where he is and that what he said is not okay. And it's not how you, I don't know. He, it's a kind of a weird combination. No, yeah. He should be grateful for where he is, but he needs to openly acknowledge that he's not where he is because of what he did. Like when we were talking about this before, um, you know, I was being probably a little bit, a little bit over aggressive towards him. Um, and you were saying that, well, you know, this probably doesn't need to be the defining characteristic of the rest of his life, which I agree yeah. with. I was being very hardline mad at him. <laughs> but I think that it does need to be like when when a public figure does something like this, it does need to be the defining characteristic of some period of time of their life. And I think the time horizon for which it needs to be a big part of his public narrative should not have concluded by now. Yeah, because it he hasn't done anything. It seems that it to... has, and all the journalistic powers are pushing a narrative that he's redeemed now. But you yeah, know, like effectively, there is the prevailing like theme or storyline of his life in the event, which was like, oh man, this guy is racist, and that's super shitty and not okay. And then that should remain the prevailing like sentiment. Like this is the thing about this guy. And then what should have happened and maybe happened a tiny bit is he's like taking that platform that he's now on of I am or was or reflected racist thoughts, whichever level is really true for him. Only he really knows that. But he should be taking that and spinning it into like, hey, guys, I did this and it was extremely not OK. And then if he does that long enough, then he becomes known for being the, hey, this is the guy who made a mistake, but is using it in an extremely positive way to build and help other people yep. and drive change. I mean, he he, he he needs to actively be NASCAR's anti-racist for a while. And I think that term is something that people sort of in a shitty way have like intentionally tried to not take seriously, like how to be an anti-racist. Um, but he needs to do that. Yep. He needs to be like the opposite of complicit. He needs to be a vocal like force for better policies, more equal treatment, more opportunity. Um, and it yeah. seems that instead the strategy he's taken is do enough stuff that there's a PR blast for a short period of time 
and then just try to stay out of the spotlight on the issue. Yeah. Which seems insufficient. I agree. By my reckoning. I agree. And it's, it's interesting because I guess it on some levels reflective of, I'm not just going to say sports media, but people and sports fans as a whole of like, I guess we've, we sort of touched on this in our first go at this podcast. Um, people looked for sports for an escape, but the real world will always trickle in. So Yep. Maybe like there's some logic and understanding behind the decision to I'm just going to put my head down and like keep racing and winning. And then like the narrative, maybe it's not even maybe he's not even motivated by the narrative, whatever. Like he puts his head down like he's not immediately doing wrong and he's winning a lot. And that becomes the narrative like and it's changed to this guy's really fast and won and is really skilled at that. And people, I guess, are generally okay with that. But at least you and I, and I'm sure many, many other people out there don't like, I can't just switch that on and off and separate the two. Like he is also a person and we know X, Y, Z things about the person. So how much should we forget them in favor of what he does in his sport? Yeah. And I would say that like, you know, there's a reason that we don't ask, uh, God, I'm going to have a difficult time naming a NASCAR driver who's like a generic NASCAR driver who's been there for 10 years. Uh, There's a reason that there's not... Joey Logano. Sure, yeah. There's a reason that there's not like a public demand for Joey Logano to be an anti-racist. And it's that, as far as I know, there hasn't been a moment where Joey Logano has been a racist. Yep. Right? You know, you sort of have an amount of like social capital that you get to use. And by being publicly racist, you send that needle deep, deep, deep into the red. And you have to do the work to pull that back up to a positive value. I assume, you know, when we're looking at a random person, my default assumption is that they're a normal good person until they prove me wrong. When you prove me wrong, you have to do the work to bring it back to an acceptable place. Um, I agree. And, and you the work. put yourself in that situation. It's not like this just happened to him. That's why this, like nothing happened to Kyle Larson. He did this to himself. Yep. Yeah. And he hasn't done any, well, he hasn't in our eyes done enough to make amends for it. And I don't know. It certainly is interesting of how much it takes to redeem oneself from something like that. And there's yeah. the, I think and uselessly, I think, because I don't know anything about him, and maybe I'm just a foolish optimist. My weird speculation is that maybe he's not deeply actually racist and maybe didn't mean anything by it. He still had something super unacceptable in his vocabulary. Mm-hmm. My guess is he probably knows and believes and maybe isn't wrong in thinking that he's not racist and he doesn't want this to be the defining thing and outwardly speaking out against racism will draw more attention to the fact that he was when he wasn't, but he still is missing the point and missing the yes. opportunity that he has with this platform to speak out against it. Because regardless of what his intentions were, he still said things that weren't okay, which does some amount to continue to allow people to say that and empower people to say it. And yep. It's, yep. By, by being pretty quiet, he's neither helping nor hurting yeah, himself. Like, and he's also not helping the cause. Yeah. Like maybe he goes on and keeps racing and carrying on head down and keeps winning and whatever, whatever, whatever. And he'll have a pretty solid legacy as a, good race car driver and maybe not a lousy person, but at least for me and you, his social equity, like you said, is still in Pretty bad. the red. Like, I mean, here's to hoping that he has been doing things and yeah. just it hasn't been discussed or reported on um, because God, race media is weird, even in the context of sports media, which is weird. Yeah. And maybe that's the other weird, interesting take on this is maybe 
like there's a weird handoff between he has a platform and should use it to openly and outwardly be working to be anti-racist, but also maybe he doesn't feel the need or the desire for like to have that vindication presented through media. Like maybe he doesn't need to be like, hey, media, I did this thing because it is helpful. Like maybe he doesn't care. Right. Maybe he genuinely is out there doing all kinds of good and doesn't tell anybody, which case great. But also it probably still is more helpful to be more vocally. Definitely so. Like because it, as a public figure, I think the best quote unquote work you can do is using your platform for things. Yeah. I think maybe even it like regardless of what he is or isn't doing behind the scenes that we don't know about, I feel like the easiest, most important thing for him to do is literally like, oh, did you just win a race and have a huge audience listening to you right now? Cool. Say something. Yeah. It strikes me as it also being possible, you know, in the context of us discussing um, racing organizations having, you know, moral failings. <laughs> it's it's probable That's also that, that he's operating in a bubble of NASCAR and NASCAR as a financial entity knows that the people buying tickets and watching on TV are a population that definitely skews in a direction yep. where they are opposed to public discussions of social justice. But I mean, NASCAR, NASCAR, it is probable that NASCAR is really, really excited to just sweep this under the rug. Oh, I'm sure they are. Absolutely. They, they are. don't want him talking about it. And they I'm don't sure want this NASCAR PR reps aren't other. talking about it. And I'm sure that Hendrick Motorsport that's been in NASCAR forever has PR reps telling him not to talk about it. Yep. So it sort of seems that perhaps his... Um, whether it be a moral or character failing that got him into this situation, maybe displays a weakness of character that he's not going to be, um, you know, enough of an activist to break out of the bubble that the organization he works for wants him to stay in. You know, it's sort of like if if you, if the people cutting your checks and telling you that they're the experts on public reception just tell you to stay quiet and you're not an outspoken activist person to start with, you're probably just going to stay quiet. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, just hoping somebody else wins next year. That's my opinion. I agree. I enjoyed having, uh, somebody to root against cause I don't follow NASCAR super, super closely. When I gave you, but the, then he won. I gave you the that five minute, uh, please tune in. It might be interesting. And then, yep. And then and it actually turned into a very interesting discussion, which was productive. I think as yep. people to consider and think about these things. Yep. Well, at least we learned something from this. We did. Hopefully other people did. And maybe anybody out there who chooses to listen to our ramblings will also learn something or think about saying something because saying things when they're positive is good. Yeah. Have a conversation. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Normalize talking about important things, even when they're uncomfortable, because they're important and productive. I agree. Well, sports got ice Very much so. You've been listening to All on the Field. I'm Arthur. And I'm Kevin. Uh, you can find us on the internet on Twitter. Uh, follow the podcast at AOTF pod. Uh, you can follow Kevin at K2 underscore Rocky on the Twitters. You can follow me at King Arthur HS and put some respect on your own name. Yeah. God, I'm a king. <laughs> uh, and we will catch you guys next week. We'll be back. Adios. We're going to redeem ourselves. Yeah. We're going to redeem ourselves from this <laughs> shit show. <laughs> Bye. Hope so.